You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites, One Step Off the Grid and the EV Focus the Driven. And joining me, as usual, is ITK Principal David Leach. David, um, I trust you are well. Charles, it's a beautiful day here in uh, Sydney and I hope uh, everyone else is enjoying uh, this uh, early end to winter. Uh, well, we've got a great guest today, haven't we? We do have a great guest and, and talking about early ends to winter and whether they started or not, then that sort of leads into the bigger question about sort of climate and things like that. But um, we won't go there just for the moment. But look, it is my pleasure to welcome uh, Luke Osborne from Stride Renewables to the podcast. Luke, uh, thank you very much for joining us. Giles and David, thank you so much for having me. Look, it is great timing because we've had a few stories recently about, um, you know, farmer opposition to renewables, um, Barnaby Joyce sort of causing havoc and trying to sort of arrange a big arrange a big protest at the Bush Summit in Tamworth next week. The New South Wales Farmers Federation, I think it might be, or just New South Wales Farmers calling for a moratorium on new solar farms. Now, Luke, you are both a renewables um, expert or in the renewables industry, and you are a farmer. And your organisation um, is part of an announcement uh, earlier on this week, a fascinating project, the Blind Creek Solar and Storage Project, which kind of mixes agrivoltaics, um, you know, conventional solar PV and battery storage in quite a massive project just outside of Bungendorf, 300 megawatts, 350 megawatts of solar, 300 megawatts and two hours of battery storage. So um, that's a huge project. You must have been working on it for a while. I have been working on it for a while, so it's it's next door to where I live, actually, and, and on my cousin Dominic and his wife Jane's property, and we started working on it, I think, in, in about 2019, uh, so so number of years of work to get a project through, and uh, I am so glad that it's reached this milestone of being approved. That's right, yes, I should have mentioned that the reason why it sort of came into prominence because it got planning approval, which I guess is a good thing too because um, planning approvals have been slow from New South Wales and I uh, suspect, um, well, you know, it might have been the story that we wrote about, um, a couple of stories we wrote about that issue which has prompted a, a, a string of approvals to come out in the last week, so that is a good thing. But look, um, tell me about, I mean, you've been interested, you've been involved in the renewables industry for, for gosh, almost two decades and you sort of come from farming stock. Um, tell me about that relationship because you, you've, you spent a lot of time going out and talking to other farmers, trying to convince them, you know, that having hosting wind and solar farms is a good idea. Now your own family is hosting, uh, proposing to host a solar and storage facility. You already live on a, on, on a property which hosts wind turbines. <laughs> um, tell us about sort of the thinking, or maybe, maybe um, I'm thinking about five different questions at once. I'm sort of losing the plot here quite rapidly. But um, tell us then, why don't you just start off telling us about your own family's farming situation and why it's interested in hosting this sort of, these sort of projects? So my family's been on the property that I, I now live on, or part of it, uh, since the 1860s. So it's been a long time here, and uh, there's several generations that live around me, so a lot of my cousins and my neighbours. 
and we were approached by wind developers back in the early 2000s under the Howard government's original mandatory renewable energy target. And that's really got what got me interested in it. But as a family, we decided that it was something we wanted to be involved with. Like many farmers who have the opportunity to host renewables, we saw it as, as a way of diversification, of drought-proofing the property, making the properties more financially sustainable. So that's you know that really piqued my interest i had a had an engineering background myself so um it was something i decided i actually would dedicate my career to and and as you say i've been out in the regions for most of my career talking to people about wind power and and more recently solar and and pumped hydro and batteries and trying to make sure that projects leave a really positive legacy in the communities in which they operate Mm. And so, just with the solar and storage, what, what, what's the idea behind this one? I mean, you're—I mean, it's a, it's a big solar project. Uh, it's going to take up a fair amount of land, I suppose. How are you proposing to sort of mix this agrivoltaics um, part of it? Because you're, I guess you're running sheep. I don't know whether you run crops on your land at all. The particular piece of land that this is focused on is quite sandy and not really suitable for cropping, but. We do graze it, and it has been a piece of grazing country for, for I guess, 200 odd years. And what we, 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 we as farmers are interested in something called regenerative agriculture, which is about using animals to uh, improve the quality of, of grasslands and regenerate the land and, and improve soils. And one of the key ideas about with that is to have smaller paddocks grazed for shorter times intensively and then having a big break before they're grazed again. And that's trying to recreate the conditions under which both the animals and the grasses evolved with big migrating herds coming across the savannah, if you like, and, and, and grazing grasses for a shorter amount of time. And that's in contrast to the way we would have traditionally uh, grazed paddocks, which is for much longer periods, set stocking, we'd call it, and leave leave animals in one area for a long time, and then they would selectively graze out all the grasses that they liked and overgraze grasses and leave them in a stress condition. So when it came to solar, we noticed that you know, solar is comes in about sort of 10 hectare blocks, subarrays, each with their own inverter, and they are about the same size as you need for this rotational grazing concept. So what we set out to do was combine the two at design time we're designing the agricultural component as well as the the solar component and make sure that we were working with a with a project that supported those agricultural goals as well and on this particular country it's our belief with partial shading um, we'll get better grass growth because in this sandy soil we tend to lose moisture very rapidly the the plants unable to make use of all of the rainfall that does fall because it evaporates faster than the, the plant can use it so we, um, we actually think we'll be able to um, increase production actually from where it was historically by designing designing it in properly does that does that make mm. sense 
Yeah, look, it does. I'm going to just get one other question before I hand over to David because I sort of hogged the microphone for a bit. But um, So does that mean it's like a, a change in the way that you would conventionally roll out a solar farm? Are you spacing them further apart? Are you putting them higher up? And um, what, what, how, you, how does that work? Yes, so there's been considerations there around you know both those things. So trying to have the widest pitch, as we call it, between the tables uh, as possible, uh, making sure that there's a strategy in place, an agri-solar plan, we call it, uh, that's well understood by both the farmer and the, the operator of the project, uh, and also making sure, I think, and this is vitally important, in my opinion, is that we incorporate the things that the sheep need at, at the construction time, so fencing and water in particular and laneways for moving the stock. They have to be in there at the beginning because it would be extremely difficult to retrofit them later on. So, Luke, uh, you, you've got environmental approval for the solar farm. Congratulations. Um, uh, I want to talk a bit uh, about that, considering you've been a senior advisor, uh, albeit briefly, at the Department of Planning and Environment. And you've also been, you are a director of the Australian Wind Alliance. Um, uh, you've been a director of Kuna Bridge Wind Farm. You've been a, uh, ran uh, Reposit Power for a while, and you were the chief operating officer of WindLab. So it's quite a lot of things. But in terms of this uh, solar farm itself, uh, I doubt. I mean, where do you, ex you, you? I guess normally you have to either get a PPA, or you have to um, have someone put the capital in to do it. Merchant, it's not something you're going to be financing yourself, is it? No. So just starting starting back. Um, with what we did, so so we were able to consult with our own community, and Dominic and and Jane, my cousins, I mentioned, really instrumental in supporting their own project on their land, and that's quite a powerful concept to have a, a farmer-led project, a project that uh, comes. You have a little bit of trust being a local that you can um, use and allows you. I love that word. I love that word. Uh, it's it's the ultimate. But but yeah yeah yeah. Um, it lasts till it lasts till about breakfast. But come on. <laughs> well, that allows you to have a, a a richer conversation, so you don't have to establish that trust. Where if you're a developer coming from out of town, often you you start at zero, and 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 locals supporting their own farmers standing up for their own projects. I think is a really important concept. Um, as far as where, is it go, where does it go from here, uh, we've partnered with Octopus, who of course is a big um, firm originally out of Britain, so Octopus Investments Australia, uh, and they're going to take the project forward. It does need offtake, you're right. I think that's a topic we don't talk about enough at the moment. And it's easy to start a project. It's really hard to finish one, and the, the project has to be exceptional to get the support of, you know, investors, its local community, the Department of Planning, and, and of course, off-takers. And, and I always set out to make sure a project is really attractive to that off-take market, a project that a corporate perhaps would want to associate themselves with. Right. So uh, in, at the moment, then, it's uh, you've essentially handed it off to Octopus. Yeah, is, and they, is... they'll, they'll take it through to construction now. And it, as you say... Uh, I wish I had enough money to construct a project like this, David, but it's it's something that, you know, much larger organisations need to do. And just remind me about Octopus. I mean, uh, it's, it's a big organisation. Origin has a share in it, of course, a large and significant share. 
but I, um, mostly we talk about them in relationship to their customer management system, their utility business. They do have quite a large development arm, as I recall it, but maybe not so much experience in doing development here in Australia? They are, uh, I think they're two distinct arms of the same organisation that you're talking about, uh, David. But yeah, we, we've found them very good to deal with and really supportive of the values that, that we share. Uh, and they've been, you know, right behind the agri-solar component that we're talking about and the other, you know, the community engagement side of this project was quite advanced as well for solar. We took a lot of the benefit sharing concepts that you see in wind and apply them to, to solar and that was quite successful. And of course, Octopus uh, was very supportive of those approaches as well. Yeah. Now, I, I just want to move uh, on from that from from your project. Although I'm sure it's a lot more to say about that. But I, at the moment, uh, there's clearly things like transmission have been demonised, uh, if I can put it that word. And uh, apparently, people are breaking down in tears at the thought of a transmission, having to look at a transmission line. Um, um, uh, opposition to wind farms it seems to be never to have been higher despite well and I have my views about that and, and winning the trust of the regions even though in my mind it's the regions that get all the fantastic benefits out of it all in terms of the, being proof you know drought proof extra diversified income uh, skilled jobs in the country um, uh, better roads, uh, um, um, you know, and all the other things that will benefit regional New South Wales and regional Victoria and regional Queensland that they haven't had for 50 years. But nevertheless, the community, uh, to put it at its most charitable, seems very uncertain about the whole thing. And, and, uh, and so what, what would you say generally about uh, how you're seeing that whole situation and the way forward well it is a little reminiscent at albeit at a larger scale than than what we've been through several times already with this industry we've, we've reached these crises before um typically what's behind a lot of this are some projects that aren't going well and and aren't earning the trust of their and support of their neighbors and so really i think you have to need, you deal with it on a project by project basis. Each project's different. Um, but what we try to do at Stride, and we get involved in the whole range of projects, those are going very well and those that need a lot of help, is, is to follow best practice and um, try to make sure that those benefits that you've talked about and other benefits, and sort of more direct benefits um, to the community are, are well understood. Uh, and that you you're, you are building trust and not that word that you picked up, David, is vitally important. You must, must build trust because it's only when you have a trusting dialogue going that you can solve some of the issues and then you can talk about some of the impacts and how to defray some of those. And it's not easy to do. I don't want to pretend it is easy to do. No. It, 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 although it isn't easy... I mean, it, it, I, I sometimes struggle to understand why it's that hard, <laughs> uh, even though I, I too come from a country background um, uh, and, and, you know, as I've often said on this, uh, on this podcast, grew up in Armidale and go back there regularly at the moment and 
you know, feel that I understand that every farmer thinks his farm is, is, is his own kingdom and people can only be invited onto it with, their, with his express permission. Mm -hmm. um, um, well, I, I, like to, I like to demonstrate how, how to do this, you know, because I felt very strongly about it throughout my career and, and I developed Canoe Bridge Wind Farm with the support of WinLab, my employer at the time, and, and some other great people. But that one was about showing that you could engage with the neighbours of a project in a different way and, and win support. And that was the first project to get approved in, I think, over two years in Victoria. And it only had one objection. It's right next to Warbra, which is a famously difficult area. Uh, that was the first one. And this Blind Creek one's another one showing that even in Bungendore, it is a large project, as you said, in Bungendore, which is quite you know close to Canberra and quite a you know built up area, you can get a project approved with the overwhelming support of your community if you approach it the right way. So, David, you're right. It, it's possible to do this. You must start in the right way, or it's ideally you start in the right way and you start with the right relationship and build that trust and build that relationship with your neighbours. So, Luke, I, I want to ask two questions. Firstly, how do you start the right way? And then I think also a pertinent question, if you've started the wrong way and got into uh, a difficult situation, mm. how do you fix it? But let's deal with question one first. How, what is the right way to start? So people look at projects as a, as a balance, if you like. There are some impacts always with having a change to the landscape and a change in the community and there's traffic and and sometimes there's a visual impact depending on the project. So those are some some things weighing our, our negative side of the scale and we've got to make sure that there are tangible, real benefits as well. Uh, so we have a process at Stride that we take our clients through. It's a very simple process of about right at the beginning, establishing what those the beneficial side of that is having a conversation with the community about that and not proceeding, ideally, uh, not proceeding with the project and pushing into planning and doing things that the community is unaware of. Because as soon as you proceed further than you've been given a license to proceed, if you like, by the community, you're getting into trouble. You're 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 doing work without without consulting without permissions. So starting the right way is starting with this approach right from the beginning, taking the time at the beginning to get it right before you decide to, to rush ahead with the project. Yep. So whereas uh, historically, my approach has always been that it's easier to seek forgiveness than, than, than permission. Uh, that's not the way to develop a wind project. We, we, if if you were a client of Stride, we would uh, we would try and reform your approach, David. Yes. Yeah. And uh, then I have two more questions before handing back to Giles, and I've ho hogged some time here. But the second one then uh, that I asked before is: let's say you, you've 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 got into a conflict situation. Yeah. What are your general thoughts about that? It's. Um... It's a difficult situation when it's already become difficult, but what I recommend is we try and create a reset in the project and we, we take a pause and we say, look, we're trying a different approach now. And there will be people in the community who will get behind that different approach and want to see, you know, a less, um, uh, a less uh, you know, conflicted situation in their community. They want to see better outcomes and we start to build, build, build them 
up a little bit and and help them engage and 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 we will get to the position where where a project is normally recoverable and then my third question relates to transmission um which is uh, uh you know um i hear a lot that the new south wales rez's transmission things are causing developers in New South Wales difficulties because they are, you know, the transmission um, explanations development is outsourced to consultants in a lot of cases who, who, who aren't the right people to be talking to the impacted landowners. And from the point of view of the wind farm developers, the New South Wales transmission is, um, they still don't know, for instance, in the Irana zone, how much they're going to be paying for transmission and, 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 uh, and a lot of the bits and pieces. And uh, I guess I'm just asking, what are your thoughts about how, if you were Energy Co, uh, how they can improve th their relations both with landowners and also with developers? Yeah, I mean, I, I have attempted to negotiate an easement at one point in my career, and it was the hardest bit of work I've done it's really tough work that one and really vital and you know I'm a, I'm a supporter of the roadmap so I just want to be clear that I think that the whole concept is good and we have an, a, a new organization in Energy Co which was designed to try and get past some of the problems we have with the old way of working under the regulatory scheme but they're a new organisation that was establishing all this in the middle of COVID. And I don't think it's been the, the best example of how you would do this. Um, you, you ideally would have been, been done you know, in the way that we talked about earlier. But it, what I would love to see, and I'm sure I will see, is a learning organisation and get better as we roll out to the next line and make sure that we don't... Um, we don't repeat any mistakes and 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 when we move to you know even you know diff different lines we 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 do a better job my turn back with the microphone we'll just take a short break and we'll come back with part two in, in a moment Of the Energy Insiders podcast. Uh, my name is Giles Parkinson. I'm here with David Leach and also Luke Osborne from Stride Renewables, um, talking about his Blind Creek Solar and Storage project, um, his experience um, as a farmer, sort of dealing with farmers on on, on different projects and um, and also even transmission. And that's kind of what we're talking about now. Luke, I mean, what you're saying is that there's still people out there just sort of kind of approaching this in in, in the wrong way. I was pretty shocked. I, mean, I mentioned this in the Solar Insiders podcast last week with um, Sophie uh, Voroth that. Um, I was at the Clean Energy Council and, and one very senior executive just said, no, of course we consult. Um, we, we tell the community what's going on. You know, we, we tell them what we plan to do and how it will affect them. And I was just thinking to myself, going, oh, not too sure that's quite the way to go about it. Um, it's sort of, you know, you when you walk into a community, you don't tell them what you plan to do and how it will affect them. You kind of, you know, sort of, we, we've got this idea. I mean, how much problems, I mean, I, I don't know how common this is, but it must be very frustrating when you see it happen. Yeah, it's really important that, as much of the project as possible is is what we what we'd call co-design. So so we make sure that there is real a real process of of making sure that the community's opinion 
adjusts the project and adjusts the way the benefits are distributed as well, but but also adjusts the project to to minimise impacts. And a small example at Blind Creek, just just to give you an example of this, is the panels um, ran slightly up a hill, and because some of the neighbours um, from quite distance distant view saw a deeper project because of that those those panels running up the hill slightly um, that that affected their view quite a lot and from our point of view we hadn't really realized this but just pulling it back down down so it's all a flatter project they saw much less of the project that way um, I, I genuinely wouldn't have thought of doing that without the community's input and that's that's an example of changing the design but we're only able to have that conversation at all and for them to sit down calmly and examine the map and, and the photo montages and say, hey, you know, just one person saying, hey, would, would you be able to do this? This would change the view quite a lot that, that we're able to do that. And this example of once you've got that trusting relationship, you can, you can start to design a better project. Mm. It's it's interesting actually. The um, Energy Australia just put out a statement this week. I'm um, talking about their pumped hydro project up at Lake Lyle, near the Mount Piper coal-fired power station. And I think there was a bit of sort of people a bit concerned about the, sort of the visual impact. And what they've actually decided to do is to to move the top reservoir to a different hill, yeah. making it less visible from some populated areas, and to actually put the turbines or the the the, the, the generating um, part of the project underground. Um, so it's not visible at all. Um, that, I guess, is a good response and, and Energy Australia insists that it will actually make it more efficient and, and cost less. Um, that seems like a, a really good outcome. Yeah, outcome. yeah that, that's, that's a great example. On the other hand, we often hear calls to put big transmission lines underground. That's probably something we'd all love to do, but, but perhaps unaffordable. So sometimes you just can't, uh, you can't please all of the people all of the time but you have to try and you have to have that ongoing relationship and a lot of what the work I do day to day and the work we do at Stride is to help people engage with I think it's the whole range of stakeholders right through to to government and making sure that you know projects are well placed to win tenders and so forth but also helping train train the people who are out in the field to do this work the way that that we've learned to do well. Yeah. So what's your assessment then of the situation we're at the moment? I mean, you know, there's been a lot of opposition and sort of discussion about things like VNI West and particularly sort of, you know, the Western um, um, link part of that in, in, in Victoria. Um, David has mentioned New England. I talked about Barnaby Joyce and this Bush Summit, things like that. Like it sounds like a lot of noise. Um, is this kind of like the last gasp of the people of, of, of the antis or is there like a real problem that needs to be addressed in, in some case? I mean, I, I, I'd imagine it's a, it's a mixture of both. I'm just wondering how much of a problem is it um, and how, um, yeah, just, just, just how to sort of nip it in the bud if it, if it were. Um, yeah. Well, on one hand, Giles, I think all of us have been, all of us have been in the industry for a long time we know we need to pinch ourselves and remember what it was like under under Abbott. You know when the only projects that were getting up at all were supported by the ACT government, which deserves a lot of credit. So, so on one hand, it's wonderful to see all this effort and all this progress, and and we're worried about not going fast enough, and the government's also behind us, not going you know go faster. So on one hand, it's all great and a, and, a, and a great change from from the climate wars that we saw. You know, for most of my career. On the other hand, I th think it's fair to say if you ask a group of 
industry leaders what they're most concerned about it's this issue it is, is it is social license at the moment um, it's the transmission lines not being there soon enough taking longer more expensive um, so so we do need to make sure that we are putting the right resources in and that we have the right models uh, we're not constrained by the old regulatory system and, and there's been a lot of changes there to try and unlock that and make sure that we are you know paying paying the right rent to the hosts of 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 the transmission lines that there's money set aside for uh, the regions that are hosting all this that they're effectively sharing in the profits uh, so there is a lot of good work going on but we do still have all these challenges i as far as you know, my feeling, I've been proponent and, and you've run, run an article that I wrote about the Black Spot program where we're focusing not only on these huge, great infrastructure projects and putting all our eggs in that basket, but we're also putting some of our funds aside for smaller anti-congestion measures so that we're unlocking some of the 132 lines or the smaller lines that are congested that we're just putting a little bit of money aside to upgrade those so that we're spreading out our projects and we're we're incrementally upgrading the grid and not relying on on very long long-term projects that all seem to be coming in at you know, 27 28 29 30 late in the decade um, i think we need to be doing more now Yes, that, that could well turn out to be a new crisis point uh, around there for, for different reasons to what we see at the moment. And it's interesting thinking about because one of the great uh, uh, benefits of renewable energy is its diversity uh, where you, from the big portfolio. I still don't think people get the portfolio approach sufficiently. And I saw that Giles had an article this week on Renew Economy about five megawatt batteries you know, spread around the place. Which brings me just uh, briefly, uh, uh, Luke, to talk about um, uh, virtual power systems. Uh, um, what were your learnings, uh, learnings from that that you would like to talk about? Yeah, that's a great question. I still think it, I still think it's really important that that portfolio that you talked about includes customers that are demand responsive. So when we have an abundance of renewables, which we already do, and we will have way more in the future, that we can soak that up into useful um, industrial processes and, and bat home batteries and people's cars and things. So that's still a really important part of this transition. I'm still a very big believer in that. It reduces the amount of storage we have if people can consume more when we're abundant and back off when we we have a drought in the, the, the wind and solar production. Having said that, I, what I learned was that consumers, and we started in, in this technology in residential setting, it's all too complicated. And what you'll hear again and again is, is consumers just really want a simple, a simple product. They want to buy their car and get an electricity plan with it. Uh, it has to be really simple we can't try and explain this very complicated sector to to that to that market um, the other thing I've learned more recently working with stride with big industrial customers is they they're finding it really hard to get their their head around the idea of flexibility so 
to be flexible in an industrial process, you need to have buffers, you need to have stocks of material either side of a very intensive, energy intensive process. So a furnace, say you've got to have a, a, a stock of material ahead of the furnace and a stock of material uh, after the furnace so that you can run it really hard when there's a lot of sun and you, know, you can slow it down when there's not. That that whole concept is quite foreign to manufacturers. And... Uh, I, I would say I've been thinking about that a lot lately myself at a very large scale, but also, and in the process of that, uh, I've seen that the management consultants, the, the Bostons and the McKinsey's are all talking to CEOs about uh, these days, about the value of flexibility and, and introducing it. But I just wanted to bring up a sort of more conceptual uh, sort of idea that, you know, do you think virtual power plants, I sort of compare them with uh, geography-based things, with microgrids, right? So a virtual power plant can have a battery in Victoria and another one in North Queensland, uh, theoretically, uh, as the one power plant. But a microgrid is doing something in its own little geography which it seems to me is a more natural unit. Uh, 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 am I should I am I thinking the wrong way? Well, no, I think you're thinking the right way because our electricity sector has two parts to it. So there's a physical network and there's a, a market, and and the market doesn't care too much where your your assets are. So from a market point of view, and and just addressing a a high price or a low price, then your virtual power plant can be spread out, as you say, across across regions and states. But very quickly, you run into the fact that we're inside a physical network. So, and and lines run out of capacity and they get over hot or they they go outside power quality limits. So, virtual power plants that are geographically constrained and can do both address the market and address the network issue are the ones that are going to work financially. Uh, and that's the best way they should be structured. They should be structured somewhat geographically so they can manage network network support, as we call it. Yeah, yeah I'm going to hand back to Giles and uh, probably covered a lot of territory today. I just ask about the ACT, which, of course, as you as you point out, uh, thanks, did keep the renewable energy uh, industry going and has a lot of is 100 percent, I think, renewable now but doesn't actually have very much of its own physical production from, 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 I mean, I think a lot of the power comes from South Australia or is generated in, in South Australia where the, where the PPAs are, are matched. But I mean, I guess it must be that the ACT with all the wind farms and now some solar farms is getting close to having its own identify a little bit of grid or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, I, I really, I'm amazed at the ACT for a small jurisdiction how it's been a leader. So it's got contracts contracts for difference with with solar wind farms all over the place, as you say. It's actually been earning a lot of money from those, and it's been that's been able. I mean, they haven't had the price rises that we've seen in other jurisdictions uh, for, for for this um, this new financial year, which is great for them. And they've also concentrated on getting batteries into their into their network, and, and obviously solar. Uh, they've been the first to ban gas and 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 electrify homes. So there's been a lot of really good stuff happening. And what I like about it is that it does think about the whole problem. Originally, when we we talked about 100% renewable in the ACT, it was about getting enough 
wind and solar just to offset the consumption in the ACT, but we weren't worrying about the, whether that aligned in time. And by adding the batteries in now and, and being you know very supportive of virtual power plants, et cetera, uh, they have also started to address that issue. And yeah, so I, I'm really a great supporter of the ACT and I think we can learn a lot from, from their approach. Yeah, it's quite remarkable what um, what they've actually managed to achieve and what they did actually achieve in keeping the industry together and sort of also protect their consumers now with the um, prices going up. Look, before we just sort of go on to sort of other, other matters, I just wanted to sort of touch on uh, just a couple of quick things. You mentioned the Black Spot campaign, and I think there's, there's a growing realisation now that there's actually a lot of capacity that could be unlocked within local grids, and that could actually be acted on uh, quite quickly. What's the chance of that actually happening, though? We seem to sort of understand that we could do it. <laughs> Are people doing it? Yeah, I've been pleased to hear from uh, distribution networks in particular and, and essentials one I've got in mind changing their attitude to this and challenging themselves to host more renewables rather than seeing it as a problem seeing it as something as a challenge and and AMO themselves have done that too you know they're, they're, they track how what their instantaneous re renewable penetration is and they o openly state they're trying to get to 100% we're at 68% I saw today so I like that just change in mindset, challenging the organisation to host more rather than try and hold it back or see it as a problem. So I'm quite optimistic that we, we are seeing that change of culture. Yeah, yeah. And just one just sort of final touch on sort of Blind Creek Solar and Storage. Um, you say that Octopus Investments now got sort of tr um, sort of um, you know carriage of this project. They're going to obviously seek to strike PPAs with big consumers. They say that the mixture of solar and storage will basically help them sort of you know sort of define PPAs and match PPAs to demand or, or what have you. So I'd imagine that depending on that, then it's going to be rolled out in sort of various stages. You know, with possibly a lot of solar and not so much battery. Or I mean, look, who knows? What sort of timelines are we? talking about look i'm hopeful this will reach financial close next year i it's really it will depend on the market i'm sure octopus will be keen to get it going as soon as they can uh, but it will depend on on what happens but I'm, I'm very hopeful of that i think the market's changed Giles. i think we will see a large battery straight up I'm, i can't be 100 percent sure of that but we've designed the project so it can accommodate both AC coupled, a big centralised battery, or DC coupled. And my prediction is that DC coupled will start to dominate in solar farms. That's where you have the battery, obviously, distributed throughout the array next to sharing the solar inverters. Uh, I, I expect that to happen, and I think we probably will see batteries being built at scale at the same time as the project. Well, that might be a good opportunity to actually teach me and, and maybe some of our listeners um, what, what the heck that means, having DC coupled on the advent, and the advantage of that. So the advantage is that you have less inverters. So in the old way of doing things, we would have a battery that's got its own set of inverter, inverters. Um, obviously, a battery needs that because it's a direct, couple, a direct current device. Uh, and then the solar has its inverters, which are spread out through the array. Modern inverters can actually accept both solar and batteries. And so you can just share one inverter. So throughout the array where you'd have an inverter, you put next to that a couple of battery packs. And so each inverter is paired with, with, with some battery packs. So instead of seeing a big centralized battery farm, they're spread out. And nominally, that's a more cost-effective thing to do because you're putting less kit into the into the farm. The, the disadvantage is you really have to do it all at once. So it's a, it's a single shot build 
rather than a decoupled build that you were talking about. And I'll just uh, uh, quickly ask too, Luke, I mean, the tradition, do you, you, you're you happy with utility solar. I mean, it has to compete with rooftop solar. Um, it looks like there's a good margins right now, but if things go back to normal, there may well be not very high solar prices in the middle of the day. Uh, what What's in it for, for, for a PPA buyer? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I do think have that, that, that having the option of storage being put in, if not, actually put in is really important for a PPA buyer, but um, solar is still delivering energy much more cheaply. So I guess they're making that decision between um, uh, cost, the, the, the cost and the, uh, and the time of day in which it's delivered. And uh, yeah, I think um, if I was a big corporate looking at this, I'd be looking at a portfolio for the same reasons that you raised it earlier, David. Good. I'm, just, right. I'm, I'm actually just wondering, I'm, I'm just seeing a few reports coming out, there's been sort of um, profit reporting seasons already sort of started in, in, in international in Europe and the US and there's a lot of people sort of talking about how solar costs are now down to pre-COVID levels. Um, wind costs have shot up as well, but it's like stabilised, but I don't hear them coming down. No, I do. I, 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 sorry, Giles, at least I reckon wind costs, at least in China, are already on the way down again. Uh, that's uh, maybe not in Australia yet, probably get through a bit later and I think you can see some evidence from that in Goldwind's uh, latest quarterly report they're the biggest wind ma turbine manufacturer in China but but certainly solar costs are coming down yeah yeah I've been uh, I've been you know again in this industry for a long time so I've seen a lot of these sort of um, supply crunches and things through the years and it's always come back that prices fall much more rapidly than you expect uh, and I think that'll happen. It's happening already as David said uh, and it'll also happen with batteries I mean there's a really large cost reduction to come in batteries a lot of the cost at the moment of around 50 percent is the pack itself and as we improve manufacturing volumes and and manufacturing techniques therefore the learning curve they'll they'll come down a lot so but i expect batteries to get a lot cheaper yeah just on that uh, i think the next technology breakthrough in the cells themselves as well as the pack is coming with solid state batteries and it's interesting that the world's largest or second largest or third largest battery maker, uh, CATL, uh, has announced a, a new solid state battery. It's one of a number of uh, companies that have been working on this, but it's such a large battery manufacturer uh, that when they're launching it, uh, it probably is going to have an impact. And anyway, I'll just put that out there that there's uh, still in the, at basic cells, there's still a lot of technology development to go. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, look, we've um, gone a fair amount of time already, but just quickly, just some other news I just wanted to touch on. Um, the big news, I guess, in the last week was the um, electrification, uh, no new gas in homes in, in Victoria. Victoria, of course, is the uh, is um, quite an interesting case because that's where most gas use is is um, by, by domestic homes, the biggest gas use for domestic homes. Um, David, did you have an opinion about that? Uh, well, I, I think it's terrific. Uh... I have some other idea, like if you took, um, you know, an alumina uh, refinery uh, and converted that from uh, uh, gas, uh, you know, the alumina refining in Australia uses 220 petajoules of gas, which is pretty much more than all the residential gas in Australia. Uh, and, you know, that's a project that you would just have to convince alumina refinery uh, uh, owners rather than having 
there will be a lot of blowback about from in, in getting rid of gas from residential in in i mean it's not mm. there will be a lot of people that like their gas for one reason or another if we take heat pumps for instance uh, heat pumps are noisy you know if you have a heat pump uh, going right next door to a neighbor's place they're not going to be happy and there's a lot of moving parts in it and they're expensive so uh, there are quite a few things to think about uh, uh, in doing that um okay um luke do you have any opinion on electrification uh i saw um premier mins from new south wales say that uh, he he thought that would happen the market would drive it that way anyway i've been involved a little bit in in new suburbs gasless suburbs in the act here and the, the issue i feel is is putting the the net the gas network in the ground for a new suburb i don't i don't think that should be done and developers don't want to do it so i i think i sort of agree with with mins i think in that that the market's going to drive people away they're going to want electric appliances anyway there's been a bit of you know health concern over gas appliances so i even without the regulation i think gas is on the way out for residential customers mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, look, just uh, maybe one more sort of wrap-up thing. Um, David, um, profit season is about to emerge in Australia for all the big utilities. Um, are we expecting to hear anything interesting or will they be trying to convince us about the sort of the bona fides of their green energy transition? Well, uh, Giles, I think the most interesting thing is not actually re- uh, reporting season, which I expect to be very good for the coal generators. Uh, of course it will be. And it's likely, the profits are likely to stay good. This idea that uh, for instance, Araring needs a subsidy when on uh, the numbers I look at, it's going to be making, you know, half a billion dollars a year for the next two or three years. To, <laughs> uh, seems fairly humorous to me. Uh, and the point is that futures prices are staying at well, comfortably over $100 for, for the next few years. So I guess what I'm more interested in is the uh, various approvals from the ACCC and the FIRB uh, about the takeover of origin uh, and then of course the the likelihood that the uh, generation business it may be the first of the gen tailors to really start going big on renewables i mean agl uh, contrary to what people like grok might like is, is is doing sfa in the vernacular really i mean terrific it signed a uh, contract with um, uh, tilt to buy some of the rye park wind farm which is already half built i mean that doesn't change anything uh, um, and Energy Australia uh, has so far done very little in the past few years. Um, so until those guys, which own most of the customers and really should be leading us, they're the ones that, uh, you talk about trust, they're the ones that need to earn the trust of Australia. Uh, into the, They can be entrusted to manage the transition, and they're not going to earn that trust if they don't do anything. Luke, any thoughts there? I mean, are the uh, is, is the inaction of the big utilities um, a, a block for the industry or, or an opportunity? Look, I don't I don't really want to um, get into the into the controversial uh, comments, um, but I will say that I think it's vitally important that they are engaged in this transition because they do own the customers, as David points out, and that's so important because we're going to run out of corporate PPAs. You know, the industry at the moment is being supported by voluntary PPAs from, from big corporates in the, for the most part. But those those people who own all those customers are yeah, the ones that are able to 
really support projects into the future. Mm, interesting observation. Look, well, I think we're going to have to wrap up the podcast there because we've run a fair bit of time and most people have done the washing up, the gardening or um, driven wherever it is that they're driving. Um, thanks very much to all On, the... on to watching the Matildas, but go on, John. <laughs> watching the Matildas. Well, yeah, it's more than a half-time break, isn't it? Um, thanks very much. Um, Luke Osborne from Stride Renewables for joining us to, today. It's um, been great hearing about your project and, and, and your observations on the industry in general. So um, good luck with Blind Creek. Thanks so much. Yeah. Um, thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon. Um, do check out our other podcasts, um, Solar Insiders podcast, of course. Uh, next episode out next week. We've also got a series of great interviews on a new Switched On podcast, which is focused on electrification. We've had the people from um, um, uh, One Postcode 2515 in New South Wales talking about how the whole suburb is going electric. We've had an interview with Shane Rattenbury in the ACT about sort of their progress and their sort of leading on electrification. And there's about half a dozen podcasts up there now. And it's really great um, listening and some how-tos and some experiences. So um, thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you, everyone. Um, we'll be back again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant generating significant value for consumers, network operators, and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost, and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.